after we recorded this episode, Etty reached out to us to let us know that we'd been using some ableist language. We're sorry for any offence caused, and we definitely do not want to devalue the experiences of people with disabilities. We've made a decision to leave the language in the episode. We want to be transparent about the mistakes we're making, and we hope others can learn from this too. We're very grateful to Etty for pointing it out to us. Enjoy the episode, and as ever, please feel free to reach out to us with your thoughts. Thanks for listening. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Etty. And this is the Journey to Transformation. Yay! Welcome to the van. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice and cozy in here. It's always cozy when we have three people in the van. It is. It's the cozy space. Always. <laughs> <laughs> so we are joined by Etty Bailey King, pronoun she, her, an inclusive and accessible communication consultant. She helps people to connect through thoughtful language and deliberate design choices that work better for everyone. Thank God you're here. We need you. <laughs> So tell us about your journey. How did this all start? How did you get here? So I am... Oh my God, I can't... <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> I mean, it's a big question. Yeah. We, we've already <laughs> diving into the existential stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my journey. So I was always really obsessed with storytelling as a kid, with that idea that when you read a story, you're like transported into another reality. And... As I got older and I learned that that's like not just an experience you have when you're reading, that is literally what language does. Like it shapes the reality you experience. And when you read a fictional story, in a sense, you are like moving into that universe. And that paired with a really, really deep sense of injustice or maybe just like being outraged all the time. I'm not sure which one it was. Meant that I always like really gravitated towards anything that would combine the words thing with the social justice thing. And I studied English lit at university and then while I was at university I was very involved in like lots of different activist scenes so lots of campaigning against gender-based violence sexual consent workshops some climate activism and it felt like they all just came together in this sort of question of how do we use words to express the way we want the world to be like how can we imagine a better world through language and then After university, I did this grad scheme called Charity Works, which is a bit like Teach First, but for the charity sector. And I ended up working in a philanthropic funder in the international development space. Who? Yeah. (laughs) She's going to tell us later. (laughs) I'm like, I'm an enigma. Nobody knows my past. It's on the internet. (laughs) Um, I worked for SIF, which is the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. And then after that, I worked for Girls Not Brides, the global partnership to end child marriage. And in those years where I was working in international development, firstly, I had this amazing privilege because when you're working in a funder, in a foundation in particular, you really get to see like across what the whole sector is doing because you're always co-funding or you're working really closely with your grantees so I got this advanced preview of what the sector was doing which I think would have taken me many more years to figure out if I hadn't started out in a funder I think also like my cynicism like loaded very quickly (laughs) it might have delayed a wee bit and whilst working in those organizations I just more and more was confronted with what we all know which is how structurally racist Mm -hmm. development is that whole sector and life and life exactly (laughs) development and life (laughs) and existing as humans and it did just get to a point where I felt myself to be I, I knew I was part of the problem and I could clearly see that but I couldn't clearly see the alternatives and then end of 2019 I decided I just don't want to be part of this anymore I can feel all the ways in which I'm just like perpetuating white supremacy every day and it doesn't feel good surprisingly so then I set up my own business which is called Fighting Talk and it's an inclusive or anti-oppressive and accessible communication consultancy and it's all about working with charities and businesses that just want to do communication differently that want to tell different stories tell them more ethically more accurately and sort of move towards social justice amazing <laughs> can you help us because we're very oppressive in our life i'm constantly reinforcing white supremacy well, yeah when you say that i mean like we have these conversations all the time i am perpetuating white supremacy in everything i do in our consultancy and mm-hmm. in international development and it's that kind of like bind of 
oh, but what do I do now? Like, do I still continue it? Do I stop? There's a real bind in that. We have conversations about that a lot on this podcast. I've tried to trap her in the van and not let her out. (laughs) (laughs) She keeps figuring out how to get out. (laughs) And it's a white van, which we're thinking about stereotypes. (laughs) Have you seen the MSF ad? Which one? The most recent one that they've sent out. They're two people who, maybe we should just show you. Yeah, let's show you. you. We'll take a little pause and show Um, you. So we just took a little pause that Etsy could watch the Doctors Without Borders. I don't know. What do you call that? Ad? Yeah. Something. Campaign for something. I don't know. Check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. But interested to get your thoughts on it. Maybe describe what you saw so our listeners can know. Mm -hmm. So I loved what I just saw. So it's a video from MSF. It's co-narrated by people that look to be a white woman and a black man, not sure of their genders. And what they are talking about is how MSF historically has told this story that is like white saviors parachuting in to save passive victims. Something that's really cool is they've owned up to the fact that the reason they told that story or rather how they told that story was by manipulating the truth so they even admit we have cropped out parents from images to make it look as though a kid was more vulnerable and they weren't in a context of care and i like how they've owned that and said we did that they haven't mm. said like mistakes were made then they talk about how it's all about breaking down this us and them so this us in which there is a superior majority white implied donor a white expert a white doctor who goes in and solves complex problems for people that don't have the capacity to solve them spoiler they obviously do and um, they've really owned up also to how interconnected MSF is with the history of colonialism so I think that's really cool and really important I like how they led with this accuracy piece because for me anti-oppressive communication most of it is about accuracy it's just about accurately describing the situation So they're saying four out of five of our doctors, I can't remember the exact wording, are global majority or or something like that. And it's like how in everything else we do, calling it male violence against women and girls is more accurate or calling it climate crisis, not global warming, is more accurate. So how can we literally describe things as they really are? They also say it's not about us and them, it's about global solidarity. I still detect a whiff of us and them in that video. (laughs) I said that. Uh, yeah, I do a little bit. Like, we're trying to give the mic to them, you know, like, I don't know. Give the what to them? The mics. <laughs> <laughs> I have a problem with this word. <laughs> you have such a problem with this word. Anyway. <laughs> Which is funny because you're in front of one. <laughs> <laughs> one day I'll get there. <laughs> I need your help. <laughs> um, but yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I think there's still a white gaze. There's still an implied frame of we white people are calling on you, majority white people. Will you join us in this brave adventure into lending humanity? to people that aren't white I'm being a bit unkind here I think it's a really cool campaign and I I really like what they've done there we liked it first glance I was like this is really good but then I was like but what's wrong with it (laughs) (laughs) but what I like about it is this kind of we're fucked up the sector is fucked up but also you're fucked up (laughs) which I quite like because they're like you're not going to pay as much you're not going to give as much if there are black people here you're fucked up too I kind of like this sort of shared sinking of the ship (laughs) you know I'm into that. I think that is an accurate description of how white supremacy has its tendrils in everything. They're not trying to bullshit us by saying like, this is a clean new space where we can get outside of centuries of colonialism and white supremacy. They're like, it is what it is. Are you ready to try and do things differently? Yeah. Yeah. I have to wonder as well what this means for the sector because they're now unearthing that they've manipulated it. So they're also kind of giving power, hopefully, to the public to be like, oh, who else is manipulating pictures, you know? Right, right. But you need someone to be, you need, you know, the people giving money or whoever to start asking more of those questions. Like, are you manipulating this picture? But it always seems to be in the same way. I can't remember the organisation, but they got really railed by people because during one massive explosion around the refugee and migrant crisis, there was an image that was taken of a small child who was just by themselves. And it was like, look at this poor brown baby, like alone. And they were like, hang on, hang on. People got really upset about it because they'd cropped out the photo when they were actually in a cluster of their family. So they were basically just walking in the middle of two massive groups of their own family. And people were like, you've made it look like this child is not in care. Yeah. And they are. 
the whole context is really fucked up, but don't make it worse so that people can like. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it's no mystery that the long term result of telling those stories is that it convinces people that international development doesn't work. And there's this myth that ever since, oh God, what was it called? Live Aid. Uh, yeah, <laughs> In the decades since then. Is that the show? The like the it was shit a show. Thing, oh, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the shit With show. Bob oh. Geldof? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you two singer. Bono. <laughs> is this the quiz element? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next. Who was there? in 1988. <laughs> that was like the archetypal moment of white saviorism calling on this global network of white saviors in every home to transform poverty and fix these problems that had been totally dehistoricized and taken out of the context of colonialism and like Western action. And then people don't feel things have moved on. Partly that's because like the whole complex system that development programmers are trying to work in is dynamic, it's always changing. Maybe because they've been working in such white supremacist ways, you can't get proper solutions to outcomes if you're just reinforcing colonialism. So I get it, but we should be terrified of the fact that people think change isn't possible. And it is exactly because of those stories, because of the cropping out of communities mm. yeah. and the narrowing of the frame. No more live aid. <laughs> Let me just make sure I understand what this is. So is it like a concert? Was that it? Live Aid. Yeah, they even did it again in like the 2000s, I think. They did. I blocked that from my memory. <laughs> what happened? That oh, song is associated with it. What song? Feed the World. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's, it's um, oh, I don't know what it's called, but yeah. The what is like, do they, do they know it's Christmas time? Yeah. Which sparked oh, the one. amazing riposte, which is like, yes, millions of Christians in Africa do know that it's Christmas time. <laughs> Will snow ever fall? Well, Kilimanjaro is snow topped. So yeah, there's like a brilliant class. Back. <laughs> but people still play that song though at Christmas on the radio. Do like, they? Turn it off. When it's on my mind in the car with my mum, I'm like, turn it off. <laughs> 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 we should not be listening to this. Anyway. Are we moving to a word quiz? Yes, let's. We have, I mean, we use so many words in this godforsaken sector. And we, Too many words. <laughs> like, yeah. And words that are potentially very not inclusive or accessible. And we would love your help to understand if there are more accessible, inclusive ways to use these words. And these words come up in our terms of reference, in the proposals that we write, the clients we work with. It's really hard to get away from them. And also, I think in our role as consultants, to challenge clients to say, stop using beneficiary or stop using mm. whatever. So... Yeah, we've got a couple of words we'd love to run by you. Let's start with disability. It was just, I think, an awareness day for people with disability a couple of days ago, actually. And persons with disability or people with disability comes up a lot for us in terms of people we should be reaching with data collection or including more often and so on. What's an inclusive way to talk Not about? excluding. Sorry, what did I not, say? I not oh, God, I'm sorry. What's wrong with my no, words I mean, you, this morning? I think you said what you meant. I'm just clarifying <laughs> okay. that I think not including more often. Did I say excluding? Not excluding. Or excluding. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry, I might have got a word fuzzle this morning. I'm so, glad you're here to help us with words because yeah, yeah. Lawrence lost all the words. <laughs> it's Monday morning. So, what's an inclusive way to talk about this group of people? So, to that question, what is an inclusive way to talk about X? I'm just going to ruin everyone's day and say there is no inclusive way to talk about anything. Actually, can I break down like what inclusive even is? Please, yeah. So if you ask people what's inclusive language, a lot of people will tell you it's like not being racist, not being sexist, not being heterosexist and so on. And at first glance, that looks all right. But to quote Angela Davis, in a racist world, it is not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. And if we are merely not invoking sexist tropes, but we're still like failing to involve all genders and we're failing to tell stories that are accurate and representative, then I wouldn't call that inclusive. So I call myself an anti-oppressive communication consultant when I'm talking to people who will get it. But most of the time, people are really scared of that word because it has oppressive in it and it sounds nasty. Mm. So they like inclusive. It's got two negative things in it anti oppressive it's like <laughs> very not bad <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what that means for me 
anti-oppressive communication is not merely not participating in white supremacy, it's actively challenging it, resisting it, dismantling it. So how do you challenge the stereotypes? How do you actually make visible that system of oppression which is lurking within our language? The words that we use normalise racism and sexism and classism and ageism all the time. They cover it up, they make it look normal and natural. They make us think that some people's needs are inherently more valuable. The way that we like centre men with male default language, the way that we might use, you know, when you hear people using diverse as an adjective, they're like, we have a diverse new hire. She's called Laura. Um, (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. And it only makes sense if you believe that a white person is the default human. And then an individual can be diverse because they are measured in contrast to whiteness. Mm. But it just doesn't make sense. Everybody stop doing it. You heard it first. (laughs) (laughs) To me, that's the anti-oppressive piece. It's the actively challenging, dismantling and resisting. And then... When people ask me what is an inclusive way of talking about X, the reason I can't give them a word or a phrase is because firstly, all meaning is contextual and it's dynamic. Things mean different things in different settings. An example of that might be Piers Morgan talking about sex workers in a way where his perspective is sexist and misogynistic and he is not centering their wants and needs is not more progressive than the English collective of prostitutes talking about prostitutes because they might call themselves prostitutes and I might call them sex workers. Personally, that's a term that sits better with me, but they are actually centering their own needs and calling for material change to the conditions of their lives. Mm. And you can't just slap a more inclusive label on something and call that a more inclusive description of an issue because it's really not. Organisations that move to talking about autism accurately and they start saying autistic people rather than people with autism. If all you do is change the world and... World? Word. <laughs> is change the world. Yeah. I mean, Got if bigger. all you do is change the world. <laughs> if all you do is change the word but you don't change the way that the power dynamics function, Mm. it's not inclusive. So... With that caveat out of the way. A great one. <laughs> I mean, you kind of fucked the rest of this yeah, quiz. Though, you know? I was like, how do I spin yeah. this? Yeah. Everything's pointless. Yeah. <laughs> On the example of disability, I'll get into it. So you've got the medical model of disability, which is probably how most of us grew up learning about disability. And it says that a disabled person is disabled because of something that is in their body. So let's say you're blind, your disability resides within your blindness and your blindness is defined by the gap between you and a so-called normal body which might be sighted as someone with vision and the medical model says that the problem is in you and you're going to have issues in your life insofar as you differ from what you ought to be and basically the blame is on that person and then Clearly, that's such an inaccurate model, let alone like before we get into all the harms that it does. But in the 70s, disability justice advocates start working with the social model. And the social model says disability does not reside in the body of the individual person because ideas of normal were basically created by the invention of statistical science. Before the invention of statistics, we didn't really think about bodies being like normal or abnormal. We had ideas of the ideal body, but we knew that none of us were the ideal body and so various disabilities, illnesses and ailments all just would have been considered normal parts of being alive. And that is more accurate And the social model of disability tells us that what disables people is social structures. So it's the mismatch between your body or your senses and the social structures in which you find yourself in. So a wheelchair user is not disabled by her wheelchair. It's the opposite. She's probably liberated by it. She's disabled by a building that has stairs or that has a ramp that she can't operate. So it's the systems and the structures that are the problem. Lydia X. Z. Brown, who's an amazing autistic advocate and activist, says why, and I'm paraphrasing here. Why would you try and call me a person with autism when you wouldn't call someone a person with Jewishness, a person with Russianness, a person with femaleness, a person with offspringness? You'd call them a Russian person or a parent or whatever. I'm going to be called a person with offspringness. <laughs> yeah, I'm wrong. I got like that. <laughs> and you are free to self-identify <laughs> however I you I kind of like the way that sort of clumsily rolls off the tongue. I like it. <laughs> and for many disabled people, That person first language feels like, firstly, it separates the person from the disability, which you can't do. Like, our disability is a part of us. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it suggests there's something wrong with the disability. It suggests there's something shameful. Like, why do I need to be separated from it? Why are we treating it with such delicacy and distance? Like, oh, don't mention it. Mm -hmm. It's like we're saying she's a person, but then we're whispering like, with a disability Mm -hmm. afterwards. So 
For some activists, particularly disabled activists in the UK, that's why they favour that identity first language that says, I am disabled, it is part of me, there's no shame, there's no blame. But it's complicated because that's really UK specific. Mm. And in countries like the US, Australia, India, it's overwhelmingly the other way. People there on the whole, support person first language, because they say that if you say person with disability, that's putting the person first and it's centering them as a human being. So in conclusion, it's complex. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Got it? Yeah, okay, take notes. <laughs> Where to begin? You know, but I think also maybe the added layer there is our clients in the international development space, you know, that's also another layer of a context that doesn't have any consideration for this potentially or laws around this. And those groups are potentially more excluded. Yeah. Definitely. My favourite illustration of the medical versus the social model is a T-Rex trying to play the drums. <laughs> Have you seen this? Which so, one is that described? So it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex trying to play the drums with conventional size drumsticks, oh, I see. but they can't reach yeah. because obviously they have shorter arms. No, because so, society has disabled they, the T Rex. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so basically, the <laughs> medical model is the T Rex there with the <laughs> conventional size drumsticks not being able to reach. Right. And then the social model is the same T Rex, but with enormously long <laughs> drumsticks and then happy and able to play. <laughs> See, that's a good illustration. <laughs> <laughs> we should put that in all our client reports. <laughs> now yeah. That should be the report. That yeah, is yeah, the report. Exactly. That would be my preference. Yeah. Where yeah. are you in this model? <laughs> <laughs> but to answer your question, because I'm being so unhelpful today. <laughs> I think if someone asks us, how do I talk more inclusively about disability? My first answer would be just actually consult with disabled people. That will give you your answer. Not yeah. everyone agrees. Yeah. To take autism as an example, more than 90% of autistic people in the UK use identity first language. I'm autistic, not I have autism. That still doesn't tell us what everyone wants. And you might get a group of 15 autistic people who all don't want to use language that way. So right. that's what matters. So where there are real people, talk to them. Where there is isn't like <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> unrealistic. <Get out. laughs> where you can't do that, survey more broadly. Where you can't do that, take a decision, show how you've grounded it in the views of relevant people. Be like, you know, we've read lots of scholarship by leading disability justice advocates and we have been informed by this perspective and we're going to run with this language and let us know what you think about it. Mm. But there are no perfect answers. Okay. I'm going to just veer off slightly yeah. from, from this one. We've been working on a couple of projects, and they won't mind us saying it because we say it all the time, but we were working on a project with Amnesty International, an evaluation of their Human Rights Defenders campaign. And it was this idea that they were kind of conferring this title upon people, like, you are a human rights defender. And then there was a whole debate around whether or not it should be human rights defender, defender of human rights, what do you... Sh mother? Lawyer? Doctor, teacher, what do you call people? And the main sort of bind that everyone found themselves in, us included, is the fact that you can't be like, we're doing this amazing program with people. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to tell me what is the unique characteristic of this cluster of people. But how do you do that in a way where you're not actually just pissing people off because they're like, well, we're doing another project where it's this conversation around like refugees, people seeking asylum. And somebody said to us, I don't want to be considered a refugee my whole life, but I would like to be in this program. <laughs> so like, how do we deal with this? How do we address this? Because I like the idea and I do think it's important to talk to people, ask, ask how you want to be identified, let people identify for themselves. But when you're doing a program, you need the egg. Collective label, don't you? You need though? to bind it all yeah. together. This is mm. a baking reference. Oh. <laughs> I was watching Bake Off. Oh. So, <laughs> there needs to be something there, but I don't know how you, we, they unpack this people need to be able to self-identify there is no way around that there will be no justice if we're not letting people show up exactly how they want to show up mm. but there can still be a conversation about how they might consent to like you said the egg the packaging around something if someone feels herself to be primarily a community activist and that doesn't fit with the label of the campaign can you get into it with her and really do like a proper meaningful ongoing consent process where you work with her to establish what the limits might be of like can there be an additional wrapper around the campaign mm. and you know within all of the content we'll always call her what she wants to be called but 
can we get to a point where there's still a slogan there's a hashtag that's different from that and actually people already do that loads there's loads of campaigns around environmental defenders which put a broad label on the group on the collective and then within the collective you've got this constellation of different words and different identities I think it's happening already Mm. great is it somewhat confusing though how do you link all of those things together because as you say constellation for me feels like whoa but I acknowledge the fact dear listeners that this is my white supremacy (laughs) coming out and my need to categorize things apologies it's how the world works isn't it eh? <laughs> it's already there if you read you know those like shitty International Women's Day profiles where it's like meet eight babes who are bossing it in <laughs> and it's horrible our and co-working you... <laughs> space does that a lot <laughs> and you read through this glossy magazine and they've all been bundled together under some kind of grim label and then you get into it and one of them is an entrepreneur doing X and one of them is a something else and they've all got different labels because they're all doing different things we are okay with the idea that there is a top level label and individual difference in everything else. So long as they're 30 flirty and thriving. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wonder if this also works at what level, like also in terms of the audience, right? If it's the public, that rapper might need to be there. But if it's people in the sector or in the organisation, there can be that constellation. Mm. So I guess maybe the audience for campaigns matters there too. And sometimes you don't need a label. In fact, I think I would go, you never need a label for people. I think you can always describe what someone does. And the campaign could have a slogan that does not name the people it could be called wow this is why i'm not a campaign strategist (laughs) (laughs) everything that came into my head was appalling (laughs) it could have an abstract name that activates ideas of liberation defense Mm. and justice okay and it's really fucking cool and it gets people psyched up and it doesn't name all the people Copyright here. <laughs> it could just be really awesome and I'm not going to disclose what it is. <laughs> Excellent. Right, like it does not have to package up those people and define them. Or it could with their consent and they might be okay with that. Does it make you feel better that these were the same things we told them? A little bit, yeah. 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 Thank you. <laughs> like We were just looking for validation. <laughs> See, we were right. <laughs> That's the white supremacy talk. <laughs> I can't help it. I accept it. I own it. <laughs> You said I could self-identify. <laughs> I guess then I'm curious how this works on a bigger scale, because the human rights defender campaigns in the UK are a bit smaller. But if we go to the international development space, you've got like a massive project, maybe with 5,000 people, and you've got these hard to reach, marginalised groups over mm-hmm. there, and they're labelled for that reason, because you need the funding or whatever. Your thoughts on that and that kind of labelling on that scale? Hard to reach. No one's hard to reach. They are just underserved or neglected or underestimated. I think Americans are hard to reach. We're quite dumb. (laughs) (laughs) You can't get through to us. Hard to reach for different reasons. (laughs) But to take the example of like, we know we'll talk about like migrant women as being hard to reach. People know where they are. If you're delivering programs for that community, you know that they exist and you potentially even know where they exist. And if they're so-called hard to reach, it's because we've designed programs that don't work for them and systems that don't speak to them. And even so when I'm doing accessibility work, a really big part in properly accessible communication is you'll have this charity, say, sending out communications. They'll be like, so weird. Our disabled service users just like aren't replying to our messages. And it's because they've been like creating in a way that either like won't make sense to someone or they can't like they've got the green and blue yellow contrasting colors flashing (laughs) right strobing effect (laughs) you're joking but like literally it might be a disabling tweet that might like trigger a seizure so no they're not going to engage with that tweet or it might be a letter that arrives in the wrong format there's small text and like they cannot get the information they need out of that Mm -hmm. and i think that's what's so useful about the social model of disability and we can just apply it outwards to everything we stop thinking what's wrong with that person for not being able to engage with us the way we want them to and instead we say how are we disabling them how are we making them unable to participate so i love that reframing of it's not hard to reach it's underserved underestimated easy to ignore often neglected seldom heard i think seldom heard is a bit of a euphemism to try and make it we're like mm, we're not hearing them but we don't know why it's like they are speaking and you're not listening yeah, yeah. yeah. So. we use the term lesser heard yeah i like underestimate <laughs> yeah because um, i'm always underestimating you yeah, that way yeah. <laughs> i can relate <laughs> it comes back to the accuracy piece like i heard a really nice example from someone at the open university the other day they've stopped 
talking about the attainment gap between students of colour and white students and now they call it the awarding gap because that's mm. literally what it is yeah they're just literally not being awarded accurately and I think this thing about accuracy is really unlocking a lot of stuff for me because I similarly have been known to be relatively pedantic and very preoccupied with words to perhaps an annoying degree <laughs> <laughs> laughter but no yeah, yeah like she knows that's, that's, listen that's to the, the last 10 episodes <laughs> that's the laughter of someone who's been held hostage yeah. by my language grades. <laughs> but I think that just helps simplify things for me it's just being more accurate in your language and what you mean and for somebody like me who is quite literal when people say like like when people <laughs> speak in abstract ways, <clears throat> I'm like, but what does it mean? My brain will not let me understand what it is that's happening. So I like this just being more accurate in the way that you're speaking and describing things as a more inclusive approach that feels easy to do. Yeah. And I think that's what connects the anti-oppressive piece and the accessible piece because I see loads of people trying to just like do inclusive comms without any chat about accessibility whatsoever which is so bizarre to me and they're really not separate because if I'm saying yeah like we're putting out all these like beautiful polished words that have been developed in consultation with you know a wide range of people from the relevant community but it doesn't make sense to someone because the language isn't literal because it uses idioms figures of speech where you need to have a native English speaking background background to get it or where there's loads of jokes and those jokes can be very disabling for say some autistic people who are more literal in their thinking the words aren't doing their job so you yeah. can't separate the inclusivity from the accessibility because they won't get where they need to go yeah yeah 100% I mean we have issues with 30 page reports Ooh. monthly we put that as a limitation in all of our reports because people say oh just write a brief report 30 35 pages that's it and we're like okay fine so one of the things that we put in there a major limitation is is that this report in itself is written in English and there are no plans to have it translated into other languages. It is only in written form. It would take a native English speaker approximately one hour and 20 minutes to read it in its entirety. We try to extract some of those bits just to draw attention to the fact that we're not really... But one of the things we do say is that we've attempted to write this report in plain language to avoid jargon and we don't use initialisms or acronyms, which mm -hmm. kind of drive people crazy because especially in this space, they're used to that big long table yeah, of acronyms. Yeah. And, and then I think that's so valuable that you spell that out and we could take it further. We could be like, and to read that report, which would take you over an hour, you would need to have no caring responsibilities and not have kids. <laughs> yeah. And you would need to you know, essentially be a wealthy white dude, yeah, yeah. which is where we get to. Yeah. Yeah. And like... Then if you look at the culture we've created in the sector, you have this culture where there's no time. Everyone is like in this panic all the time. There's too much reading. There's too much information to digest. A big part of my accessibility work is thinking about cognitive load. So it's the idea that literally like your brain has a certain amount of capacity. If you split it lots of different directions, then you're not going to be able to read, listen or remember. And what is that doing to our cognitive burden as a whole sector that we're like frantically trying to catch up all the time, always aware of what we missed out on, always struggling to check like, oh, did I actually understand that? Because, you know, that initialism was the same as the other initialism and it just stops us from having any time for self-awareness. We did a jargon quiz where I just got all the jargon together that Lauren herself had written in reports. <laughs> I pulled them from reports she had written and just quizzed her on them and you did alright. That's because my cognitive load was just super crazy. <laughs> 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 Overburdened. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. But I mean, it's really true. But the thing for me is I don't understand how we shake people out of this because we tried to move to things to say like, look, you're not going to read a 40 page inception report. We'll write it down for you because we need to understand our own pathway and we need to map out our work in a way that makes sense for us. But you're not going to read this and it's going to actually create a lot more tension and challenges for you. So what if we do it as a presentation or what if we talk to you about it or what are the different ways that means you'd be able to meaningfully consume this information without making you insane and it's hard yeah really hard people just really really fix to it mm. and they can't actually see the fact that we're trying to help them and also we don't want to write reports <laughs> <laughs> 
and I think I'd go a step further. So it's it's not really about them consuming the information. It's what are they going to do with it? What are you actually going to change as a result of this? You know, does the data show that this particular community is being neglected? Let's get straight to what the action is. And can you make the presentation? Maybe not even a presentation of the findings. Can you jump right ahead to the land of action and recommendations and challenging people to be like, why haven't you done this yet? And what are you going to do about it? Yeah, we have had a couple of clients like that. Some more forward thinking clients who actually want us to support them in that moving forward piece. So we get involved a little bit in the development of their management responses, for example. And then one of the questions we ask is, what are you going to do tomorrow? One action you'll take tomorrow. And that's the one that takes them the longest to do. Because they'll be like, oh, this and the, oh, these intermediate outcomes. And this is what, oh, yes. And in like six years time, (laughs) this is the season of change. I'm like, okay, tell me what you're going to do tomorrow. And they're like, what? What? Like, what are you going to do tomorrow? Read more report. <laughs> Check my inbox. That action stage is always really the hardest one. And I think you're right. Maybe we should just get out of this whole business of writing reports and yeah, just moving I mean, because, to... Because that active facilitation of how you connect the findings to recommendations and then into the organization, I think is the most fruitful. Yeah. We've seen that be the most effective for us. And it's the one we have to force onto clients the most. Yeah. We're like, look, we promise you, this is really good. You're going to love it. <laughs> They're like, like, oh, it's because because the donor and other stakeholders will request the report. So they feel that that has to be there for them, too. But they also feel like that's the end point. Yes. After the report, there's nothing. Whereas we're like, no, that's the beginning of everything. Right, right. True. The more I learn about trauma and the nervous system, the more I'm like, we are all just going around with our like embodied trauma, all in fight, flight, freeze and flop. And we're all, I've spent a lot of time flop. in flop. <laughs> it's like when an animal plays dead to avoid being eaten. And so many common workplace practices in the sector fit into those categories for me. There's a lot of flight, a lot of panicking and quickly moving to just like doing everything the way it's been done before. And everyone's trying to just pass account ability on and be like oh don't ask me to do anything there's too much of everything have you seen my inbox i don't have any time i haven't seen my children in three years everyone's just so overloaded and if you challenge like i try and challenge all those different aspects of working so i try to say that i don't do any emails ever with clients we only chat within slack because slack is just so much cleaner and lighter and you can actually find what you're looking for and it's searchable mm. and also like it kind of just stops people. and you can schedule messages yeah <laughs> i'm sure of email as well yeah. but i just like the idea of scheduling messages especially if i'm about to drop something on somebody yeah. <laughs> bye, bye. Bye. that's just a really small example like getting people out of their inboxes so that when you do get an email that's only ever like final delivery of a piece of work when that's done properly that totally shifts the way people think they are so much more responsive they are not losing like six hours a day to managing Mm. their inbox and i genuinely think that is an anti-oppressive practice Mm. you can get people out of their inboxes get people out of extinguishing fires yeah but it takes more than just one person having a little working with me document and saying i don't do email it takes everyone yes to change that we've started using a client management platform where it's basically a bespoke space for us and for our clients and it moves out of emails entirely so everything happens in one platform and we can chat with them they can leave voice notes they can make videos you can have meetings in this space this magical I'll tell you later. <laughs> We're not saying it out loud. <laughs> Hire us and you'll get to experience this magic. Um, but it's basically this idea of moving away. But you can also load reports into it and you can talk over the reports and annotate and explain what each piece yeah. is. And you can describe what's there. That's so accessible. So that people aren't... It's just too much. It's too much sometimes. And I'm like, we do a presentation. We do validation sessions where we're saying, okay, here's what we found. Mm. Are we full of shit? Probably not. But here's your, <laughs> here's your opportunity to tell us. <laughs> and then you get this like massive report and everyone's sort of disengaged, except for like the three people who have like the highest vested interest in their reputations. And those are the ones who are like Bleh! on top of everything that never gets shared with partners. It never gets shared with anybody else that we've interviewed. 
never. And they will usually say it's because of security concerns. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> do you know you're full of shit? Because I do. Yeah. But this gives people an opportunity to just listen to us describe and walk through the report, which I think is just going to be easier for people. Yeah, way yeah. more accessible, as you say. Just also hear the nuance in our voice or like what we've got additionally to say alongside their questions. It's so valuable. Yeah, for um, people who hear, research finds that within seven seconds you can detect accurate tone and meaning whereas you might read a thousand words of report and still not be entirely clear if they're being like harsh critical or like benevolent critical tone is so hard to transmit yeah this is what i'm feeling whenever people ask me to do a value for money assessment because <laughs> i'm like here's how i have assessed it but effectively what i usually say is look it's really hard because the different contexts and you can't compare different things and like here's what i can say generally and here's what i think using an evaluative judgment. However, caveat, 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 caveat. <laughs> because I have a master's in global diplomacy. <laughs> but you when still? I say it, they're like, okay, yeah, I'm like, I'm not making a judgment here. There's not a judgment call. I'm not saying good spending, bad spending. I'm saying this is what spending looks like. Mm. This is the landscape. Here's what you might think about other ways of spending. But you did what you did. There was no fraud. Everyone's fine. <laughs> but when they read it, they have complete and total meltdowns. And then I'll just get like all these comments. I'm like, but what about this? And I'm like, whoa, I said, no judgment. Yeah, This is a chill space. <laughs> Everything's okay. Yes. And I think it's right. Tone, it really, really matters. And I don't know how to like, I don't want to overflower the tone because that feels disingenuous when I'm writing. But I'm also the type of person who puts punctuation in my text messages. So, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm the asshole here. Sorry, my white supremacy came out. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you just want to initiate curiosity, don't you? Yeah. Rather than defensiveness. You want someone to be like, okay, but could you just tell me a little bit more about that or how you got to that or what's missing? You know, just a curious mindset, which can be inflicted with tone, but also I think is partly the client. And I do think <laughs> hearing it will help Yeah, for people who can hear. I think that will help a little bit because I think we're much more interesting when we're talking. <laughs> Fair enough. Than when we're writing. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Maybe I'm doing a podcast after all. <laughs> Imagine this in written form. Oh my God. Gross. <laughs> there was something I was thinking of earlier. We've got to this point where there is all this jargon and this words and stuff. And what always disappoints me is when I go to do an interview with a partner or even a rights holder or somebody who's in a context that we're doing an evaluation for and they echo that language back at me like the language of organizations and it's very hard to break down that wall or that barrier that the organizations have built mm. you know it's like how far has this gone to the point that unraveling it is now really having to go back through to rights holders just regular people using NGOs yeah speaking. literally like <laughs> back at me like anything you know like yes I'm a rights holder and yes I want wash and I'm simplifying it massively but you know what I mean yeah, because language is power, because it shows and replicates power structures, it's so confronting when you see it like that. And at the kind of nastiest end of the spectrum, you see how there are people that are using a word because they're hoping that it will get them something in a system where they're being completely devalued. They hope that by using the right language, maybe this NGO will start really actually working for them. And it's mm. like, mm, well, caught within the web of racism and colonialism and white supremacy and everything, that's probably not the case. And mm. it's really sad. And actually, I think I would connect this with this tension. It's maybe even a misconception about what language can do, which is with anti-oppressive language, like it's simultaneously, it is absolutely transformative because language does actually shape how we experience reality. It shapes what we consider is normal, whose needs we care about, what policies we support, everything. But also it's only words. And anyone who thinks that you can just slap a new word on something else and make it inclusive is kidding themselves. It's all about transforming the actual material conditions and the power dynamics. And anything else I think is just woke washing and making people believe they'll be safe in an environment where they actually won't be. So with that language, actually with rights holder, I want to chat about that. Yeah, I, I think you're going to get it in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is white supremacy showing its ugly face. If we truly properly believe that those people are rights holders and that's genuinely how we see them, I don't think we would be calling them rights holders. We don't call white cisgender men rights holders because we fucking know they've got rights and the world is built for them. We call people rights holders when we're like, by the way, they have actually got rights. 
Did you know? <laughs> I think I think that is more in the territory of euphemism and overpronunciation. And it's like trying to compensate. And I respect where it's coming from. And I have a lot of time for it. Like, I really like saying co-liberator instead of service user. Because I think it's like actually really true. Like, if we're all working together, we're in solidarity, then your beneficiaries are actually your co-liberators, really. Mm. So I think it's accurate and it's mm. optimistic and expansive. When I have seen phrases like rights holder used it's often in spaces where those rights are not being recognized Mm. and the only recognition they're getting is the word that looks really nice and that's all Mm. i kind of feel i'm of two minds here yes in a perfect world i would love everyone to be a co-liberator or a co-conspirator is my Mm. preferred terminology But we often work in places where their rights aren't being recognized. So it is that, did you know they have rights? Mm. It kind of is that. Yeah. And that's the tension that I find. And maybe it's, again, context dependent. Yeah. And that for some, we need to be drawing more attention to that. For others, we don't need to. But it's kind of like one of the steps we've been making to try and move people out of like beneficiary. Mm-hmm. Which for me feels, I mean, we use it, but we've been trying to get out of using it because it's that weird dynamic of like, here are my many gifts. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) It constructs people as passive recipients. A beneficiary doesn't authorize or shape or demand or call for what is done to them. And I say to them with full sincerity because that usually is how someone that is named a beneficiary is just eaten up by this big NGO that's around them that is going to do whatever it sees fit yep. to yeah. that person. What do you think about ally? Hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm in two minds about it just because of how much the, the conversations around, again, it being a bit of a superficial label, like I'm an ally, but what are you actually doing or what are you actually changing? And it's a word that I think we've seen lots of people just take and be like, you know, as a pat on the back, I'm an ally, now I can just get on with my life (laughs) sort of thing. I want allyship to actually mean that someone's on the hook with me. That's why I like co-conspirator because you both go to jail. Mm -hmm. Like that's what I'm looking for. Whereas ally is like, I've got you, bro. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Until something. Here comes the police. Cool. (laughs) I got a sign. (laughs) It, It means something. There's too much distance Allyship for me has come to mean there's too much distance. Whereas I want you like chained with me in the street. Mm. We've both got our hands glued on the Picasso reference to climate activists who are sticking themselves to things. Yes. Co-conspirator feels like that describes that more accurately Mm. um, than ally. (laughs) What are your thoughts? Yeah, exactly what you've just said there. It's like to go back to the (laughs) MSF. Solidarity means that you are aligned with and connected to someone else's struggle. And the old way of doing things, or the way that is actually still very common in the sector, is it's us and them, it's one person deciding for other people what their needs are and which ones should be met. There has to be a bright line between, you know, probably it's your like white country office staff versus your global majority people that receive, that's in scare quotes for <laughs> people <laughs> for who are listening. The people who, yes, receive things from the kindness of that white saviour point of view. And I mean, that's how that power dynamic shows itself. It's in that divide. Like you don't call someone a beneficiary if you really think that your cause is connected. Yeah. You only call them that if you think that you're stepping in and solving their problems for them and that you don't really think that you're responsible for their problems. If as a white person in the global north, you understand that you are intimately connected with and quite personally responsible for a lot of these issues, you're not going to call someone a beneficiary. Mm. Yeah, we were doing a project for... And they had this whole thing about shifting power and we want to shift power in a feminist organization. And I was always just like, but what does shifting power mean? What does that look like? And as we were starting to unpack things and they were like, no, decolonizing aid, decolonizing development, this, this, this. And I was like, these words are sexy as fuck. But what are you saying? (laughs) Because again, the literal person in me, this is where Mm -hmm. that works really well. So I'm like, but explain to me specifically. What does this look like? And what we started to break down was that that's not what they meant at all. (laughs) 
And I like the term woke washing. That's basically what <laughs> this was. Because it was this idea that working in partnership, because they wanted their partnerships to be flatter, equal. But really what they were saying is, well, yeah, we still want these partnerships, but they still have to go through our due diligence process. And that means they need five years of registered accounts. And da, 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 da. And somebody gave me this story of them trying to do their due diligence on somebody who was living in an informal settlement who was running a like pop up business. And they were like, but we need to see like your gender policies. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> and they're like, and we need multiple forms of ID. And they were like, yeah, what? <laughs> and so just thinking about how all of this stuff really just seeps into the way that people. And I think that's what I'm taking away from this conversation is it's not what you say. It's what you're doing and how you're doing it within the ecosystem that you're existing in and the eyes with which you're seeing. Yeah, definitely. And it reminds me a bit of the Pledge for Change. What do you call that? Declaration? What's it called? Oh, well, anyway, Pledge for Garbage, Change trash. with we international organisations. We did an episode on it and Etty also did a post about it, about how, you know, some of those commitments just didn't go far enough. We're using that language very much under the radar where partners need to do this. You know, it was kind of still there. So, yeah. yeah. It's just tweaking the details whilst reaffirming that there is a we and that that we is white people in the global north yeah and there is a they or a them and that sort of everybody else that is not part of that dominant group yeah. and like just people using the word decolonization if they're not actually talking about land return into the stewardship <laughs> of indigenous groups that doesn't mean what you think it means mm. it's not a thing you can't i can't just be yeah. like i'm decolonizing social media because i share stories from global majority people <laughs> I actually mean what you're saying. It's and I, a thing to do. Yeah, we do were unfollowing that account. Do the thing. <laughs> For me, it's also the partnership piece. When people talk about working in partnership, I get that we're not, I don't think we're really going to shift power in this <laughs> sector. Sorry. I just don't think we will because our interests in the global north, our interests as educated people, as white people, as who people, you know, our interests are centered in us being able to keep our power and maintain this model of us for them. Mm. Right. Yeah. I include myself in this model because you're a white supremacist. I'm a white supremacist. <laughs> <laughs> because I reinforce this thing, right? I'm in this machine as well, even though I'm light brown for our listeners. Um, <laughs> oh, they know. Because <laughs> I'm always complaining about white people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's some white boy banging on the van. <laughs> but I, I just feel like when we talk about working in partnership, we really mean working in partnership. And we're always in pursuit of doing that better. I always think about this example when somebody, we wrote in a proposal that we would be working with researchers based in the country that we were doing whatever in. And they pulled us up on the budget and they were like, so just see, can you just explain the budget? And I was like, yeah, so these are the person days. This is what activities we'll be doing. Just uh, multiply. That's how you get the thing. And they're like, okay, but like explain the team. And what they were getting at very tentatively is that all of the people on the team were being paid the same amount. <gasps> and they were like, they couldn't quite get there. And finally, I was like, if you're referring to the way we've decided to pay people, is that what you're talking about? Is that where, what you're getting to? And they're like, yeah, we're just curious, like how it came down to that. And I was like, well, we all bring skills that are relevant and equal. And it's only by virtue of the fact that our colleague lives in X country. It's got nothing to do with them, the skills they bring. If they could be working in the UK with us, they'd be making the same, if not more than us. Mm -hmm. So we will honor their skills and experience and we'll pay them the same out. Yeah, just <laughs> <laughs> okay. that one yeah, what a funny way to get there. Mm. And like, we're always trying to figure out how we can continue to work in partnership better and how we can step away from things and how we aren't, how we use whatever unique thing it is that we do to put other people in positions that they can be passing the mick as <laughs> but, but how do like, this is the thing is I always find like people talking about working in partnership to be really disingenuous because that's not really what they mean well if only partners led with their own language so yeah. it might be one star a project that i'm doing right now with leap is so interesting because it is a meaningful <laughs> i was like i haven't heard of this <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, i was like bleep <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a meaningful partnership and communications project. And they were so into it from the beginning, so excited. And then we get into what meaningful partnership looks like. And I'm like, okay, so obviously we'll be decentering your brand because your brand is a huge global INGO household name. You're going to overshadow a lot of these grassroots activists. You need to step out of the way. And they're like, yeah. Oh, I'm not sure about that. And then it's like, okay, <laughs> well, obviously your partners need to be able to leave at 
any moment and there will be no exit cost whatsoever for them exiting this partnership because if it's meaningful ongoing consent they can step out the second they like and there's nothing you can do about it at least that's my stance and they were like yeah or or five-year contracts <laughs> what, what about five-year contracts I was like no and so yeah just like breaking it down getting into yeah. those details yeah. and other questions another one we're building into all of the policies right now is if we are not the best placed organization to be talking about this issue we will stay completely silent on it mm. or we will signpost to the relevant groups yeah that's the hardest thing and then like, we could thing. fundraise and get money from it no yeah. that's not yours yeah i mean this is a natural cheese theme how to get out of the way when you know you are not best placed to do that get the fuck out of the way that's, that's all we're saying to people oh, it just feels so validating right now because <laughs> we're constantly like you're enormous you're yeah. drowning everybody else out you're big black hole yeah move but we need to start a movement called get out of the way yeah <laughs> move your big black hole yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a thought I'm just workshopping ideas that's why neither of us is campaign strategy <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean as a literal description of things right I mean you, your search fields would get lots of stuff but you know let's yeah. see I think that that's something that was really really helpful is how to think through some of this stuff and maybe yeah. it's just about like my kind of big takeaway is just taking the time to think about things like this and to really think about what it means because I feel like what we do is a surface level and people want like quick tips and tricks and like yes how to be anti-racist in eight easy steps really it's just take one big step back have a think about what you're doing don't be an asshole yeah, I think my big takeaway from this is like, you know, people jump on this language like rights holders and other words that come through. And as you say, like kind of superficially slap it on and then be like, OK, we're done. We've got these like inclusive words when actually without that deeper reflection underneath, without talking to people, without understanding that self-identity self-identifying matters you will no <laughs> we, already we already know that and um, that self-identifying matters that like it's just a bit of a, a washing on top really and i just really like what you said before about that language you know is all about the power dynamics but it's also just words and, and kind of words matter that and don't <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, how you balance those two, two things together it's a really good, big takeaway for me yeah i genuinely i think that sums it up it's it's words matter and also know that they are the least significant thing about how you're actually going to be changing people's lives or not yeah. and in the event where you're woke washing it's so much worse than not taking action yeah. because you're building yourself up as someone who is taking action and stealing that attention and that kudos which you do not deserve and I think and like, you're going to get dragged for it <laughs> yeah. you're going to get dragged right for it right here right now <laughs> as, as is only right should I chat about how to be more inclusive yes some, like, yes yes how to be inclusive in eight easy steps. <laughs> <laughs> Quick wins. Right, there's the whole recognising that it's not enough to be merely inclusive. Like society is not a club that people are either in or out of. Oppression is like complex. It's intersecting. It's all these actual like systems of oppression that are targeting individual people. And so you can't just be like a bit nicer, a bit more polite. You have got to be making visible those systems of oppression and challenging them. So there's the active element. There's the recognising that words are not material change and we also need to be paying our contributors making sure that the people whose stories we used to fundraise like genuinely knew where their story was going to end up they actually understood it was going to be on the tube they weren't just told it's you know going to be put out there and people might donate money as a result of it there's being specific we're highly specific about people who have power we never say like the cisgender white male community because we don't generalize about powerful white men but we get very vague and generalizing about people that are marginalized or minority so it's actually being specific and if it's Black History Month don't say you're telling global majority stories say you're telling stories about black history and that you're challenging anti-black racism like actually name it don't say you're working on an LGBTQ plus uh, issue say you're advocating for trans people's rights so like name it actually name white supremacy call it what it is you won't explode and the more that you talk about it the more you're able to see it and challenge it um, avoiding euphemism so euphemisms are like polite terms that we use around things that we consider like unclean or dirty or shameful so there's loads of euphemisms for going to the toilet for example like mm -hmm. spending a penny mm -hmm. and we also use 
and we have euphemisms for like disability and sexual orientation which reveal on some level that we're still using this language that thinks that those are shameful differences and they're not so you don't need to say like someone plays for the other team you can just say like they're gay that's fine we've got clear neutral language to Lauren's talk about. always calling me a lesbo is that okay oh my god get out am I <laughs> <laughs> please yeah, that's a big bleep. <laughs> I mean, I am though. So it's, yeah, it's getting away from these euphemisms because they just stoke stigma and shame and also putting the blame in the right place. So I talked about calling it male violence, not just violence against women and girls. Like it's not the weather. It doesn't just happen. Just like actually centering minoritized people's voices. It honestly is that simple sometimes. Who's telling this story? Can they tell it for themselves? If they possibly can, then don't edit or paraphrase their story. And if they don't want to, then find a way to work with them and genuinely co-create it. Co-creation does not mean that you decide what you're going to say and then find a quote that fits it. It means they lead from the get-go. That seems fairly reasonable to me. Yeah, well it is. Yeah. 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 No like, excuses. Oh. I mean, <laughs> this is like really inclusion in eight. Simple step. <laughs> we just now have to live these values now. Yes, that's you need to hold bit. us to account. Well, we do have a our our what is it quarterly accountability session. Yeah, we'll have a, a quarterly accountability session, and we'll check in with you where we are. Okay, <laughs> love it. Etty, where can people find you and your work if they want to work with you? Find me on LinkedIn. Yep. I'm Etty Bailey King. Etty is E double T I E. I'm on Twitter. We'll see how long that lasts. I'm Etty BK on Twitter. And my website is fightingtalk.uk. Amazing. We'll Amazing. put all that in our show notes as well. So you can find Etty. And I've got a newsletter, Excellent. which you should subscribe to if you care about anti oppressive and accessible communication. It's like really short, snappy little snippets of how you can think differently about anti oppression and how you can be more inclusive and more accessible in daily life. Thank you so much Etty this was so insightful it's been really fun yeah thank you for joining us thank you so much for having me I've had a great time yay well I'm Tia I'm Lauren I'm Etty and this has been the journey to transformation bye 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 thank you for listening to this week's episode of journey to transformation leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast journey to transformation is written and edited by us Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows our music comes from Praz Canal